I am sure that all of you are familiar with a good friend of ours whose name is Charlie Brown, right? You've seen the little Peanuts comic strips, and you understand just how bad his baseball team is, right? No matter how hard they try, no matter how Charlie Brown tries to encourage them and envision them, they always seem to lose. I do remember one particular comic strip in which he is conversing with Linus, and it's about the baseball game that they, were, that they had just played, and he, he's trying to communicate. I mean, we, we were set to win. Everything was going our way. Victory was in our grasp. And then the game began. Are you familiar with that one? Maybe you've heard it. And, and sometimes, doesn't it feel that way, church? Sometimes it's, it seems as if victory is elusive, and then the game began. We can feel that way. We can go through struggles in life, and we can honestly feel weary. We can feel beaten down. And yet, last week, we looked at a particular verse in Romans chapter 8. So go there with me, Romans chapter 8. And my intention today was to move on to chapters 9 through 11, and the Lord said, uh, put the brakes on that, and we're just going to camp out again one more time today in chapter 8. Now, in chapter 8, verse 37 through verse 39, follow me as I read, it says, his question is in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he offers some potential or suggestions anyway, and he says in verse 37 with this emphatic, resounding no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen, church? And... Uh, this, this verse, verse 37, we are more than conquerors. That, that phrase, we are more than conquerors, it preaches well. Do you understand what I mean by it preaches well? In other words, yeah, maybe pastors, you know, we, hey, that, that preaches well. In other words, that is such a, a truth, a profound uh, promise, and it inspires hope. And we, it would be very tempting for us to just walk up to any Christian and say, you are more than a conqueror. You are more than a conqueror. I mean, doesn't it seem to read this way? Doesn't it, wouldn't it seem viable to, for a pastor to say, every single one of you today are more than conquerors? Now, here is a reality check, and I'm not going to go pessimistic on you right now, but here is a reality check. There are conditions, whether you see them or not, there are conditions in this verse. Let me show you a promise that is not a condition, and maybe you're going to grasp this verse just a little bit better. Go back, go back to ch chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore, now, some of you can even recite this with me, maybe from a different version, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, how many of you today are in Christ Jesus. Can you raise your hand? You are in Christ Jesus, okay? Some of you didn't raise your hand, and you are in Christ Jesus, but you're trying to find the verse that I just read, probably. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, if he has rescued you 
from your sins, if you have been justified by faith and raised by the very power that raised Jesus from the dead to newness of life, you are in Christ Jesus. And being in Christ Jesus, he has given you this vast inheritance. My question to you today is, in view of this vast inheritance that he has given you, that you can read in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, and honestly throughout the book of Romans, all that he has bequeathed to you, are you walking in it? Are you living in it? Are you apprehending it? Are you walking in your life, however, as if you're still under law? Or have you really grasped the truth of what it means to be under grace? You see, we have this inheritance, but it is our choice. It's your choice, and it's my choice, whether I live in that promise. See, in Christ, and that inheritance is guaranteed. We all have it. But how does this verse read? Verse 37. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You are more than a conqueror through Christ. You see, that's the condition. Now, here's why I'm saying it's a condition. In Christ is a promise. It's given to you. You didn't have to ask for it. But living life through Christ every day, that's a condition. That is not a guarantee. Because as Paul has mentioned, we can walk in the flesh. We can walk in what we think is best rather than what God thinks is best. We can stumble into sin, and we can even backslide into sin, and we can begin to do the things that we used to do that were contrary to the heart of God. And I'm not going to promise you that where you're at right there, that you're more than a conqueror because you were not. You've made a choice. Not to live your life through Christ. You can live a defeated life. Yes, you can. And so when I'm talking about being more than a conqueror, or as we looked at last week, a hyper or super conqueror, or I, I like the term an elite conqueror, stealthy, ninja, you are that through Christ. You see, in Christ, or as a child of God, living life in Christ is our promise. But as a child of God, living life through Christ is our potential. Life in Christ is our position. Life through Christ is our decision. Life in Christ avails us to life through Christ. So here is the reality check. And I touched on this last week, and the Lord is wanting me to emphasize a few more things in this passage here. Every day when you wake up in the morning, you, uh, you make a decision. I believe God is going to help you make this decision, but you make a decision. And that decision is whether you're going to live this day in faith or not. Now, it takes only a grain of mustard seed, but you see, faith, you might be thinking to yourself, Mike, what are you, what are you talking about? I, I believed in Jesus when I was 14. I'm saved. What do you mean I'm not going to live in faith? 
Okay, that is faith that saves, but faith is something that we also grow in. How are you doing growing in your faith? Because faith is surrender. Faith, even when I was converted, was my pledge of allegiance to this new king of this new kingdom that I have just been birthed into. I pledged my allegiance. Faith in the Greek means to commit oneself to. It is much more than just saying, I believe in the Apostles' Creed. Now, every Sunday morning, when I was in high school, at least, every Sunday morning in this particular church, we quoted the Apostles' Creed. Nothing wrong with that. But by me standing up and quoting the Apostles' Creed, I didn't get saved. It was not by an apprehension of the truths about who Jesus is and what he accomplished for me on the cross that I was saved. I had to take one more step, and now I had to surrender to these truths, and specifically surrender to a person. That's why Jesus challenged him, especially in the book of John or the gospel of John, believe in Jesus. See, faith is relational. Faith is surrender. So then here's my question. How are you doing surrendering to Jesus? This victory does not mean for me to walk in victory, I've just got to do more for his kingdom. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you have to surrender more. It's a very different perspective. When I surrender to him, when I wake up in, my, in the morning and I'm feeling the weight already of what lies ahead of me in that day and the hard decisions, say, of, as a manager over a team in a business that I've got to make, and I know some of them are not going to be happy with, the, with that decision, but it is the best decision, I believe the most godly decision, and will actually benefit the business the most, but some of the people are not going to like it because it's not what they want. And I've got to make this decision and live with the fact that they will probably not like me. But they'll get over it because they know that I care about them. And so as a result, over time, I will probably win them, but they're not going to like this decision. And so right then and there, and as I am spending time with Jesus in that morning and I am surrendering that decision to him, I am also surrendering that day. I'm surrendering how the people even hear what I have to say. I am surrendering all of this to him, and I am telling him, I am yours. And it, and it can't just stop there, because throughout your day, moment by moment, day by day, you live this life of surrender. This is faith. Life through Christ. You being an elite conqueror is by faith in Christ. Philippians 3.19. I can do all things. Help me out through Christ who gives me strength, through Christ. I, I can't promise you that you can do all things as a Christian. I can't say that's a guarantee. No matter how you live, you are gonna do, you're going to be able to do all things. No, nope. but I can promise you this, that if your heart is surrendered to him through Christ, because that's what faith means, through Christ, surrendered to him, I live my life through him, and he lives his life through me, you will be able to do all things. You will. You will be that elite conqueror. That is 
what Paul is trying to communicate to these people, but he doesn't use the word faith. Remember, this is a section of Romans, and we move into in Romans chapter 9 that we're going to look at. I don't know if it's going to be next week or the, the week after. But very same thing, we are going to be, we see this portion of Romans through that one monocle, that one lens of God's set purpose. And he is not trying to show us the Christian life through that other lens of Acts 2.23, foreknowledge, which includes man's responsibility. He's right now looking at it through God's sovereignty. This is what I'm going to do for you. Through Christ, let me tell you about this. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, you're going to need to surrender to be this elite conqueror I'm, going to talk, I'm talking to you about. In other words, he could be saying, if he was looking at it through that other lens of, what do I do about this? How am I a part of this equation, God? Paul would have said, if you live life through Christ, fully sur- or surrendered to him, you will be a super conqueror. That's how he would have put it. God may deliver you through your trial. God may rescue you from the pain and the anguish that you're going through, that you feel, and some of you maybe even very intensely this morning. He may rescue you from all of that. But being an elite conqueror does not mean you will not experience the pain of life. That's not what he's getting at. Being an elite conqueror means because he loves me, I am now through the cross. That's how he demonstrated it. It's in the past tense. He loved me through through him who loved me. Now, of course, he still loves us, but his point is he demonstrated that love through the cross. It is his love demonstrated through the cross, and now I have been rescued. He foreknew me, he predestined me, he called me, he justified me, and he's glorifying me and will ultimately glorify me when I reach heaven. But I am living this life through faith, and because he loves me now, I'm transformed and I will live my life through him. And because of that, I am now made, by his grace, an elite conqueror. And I will face each suffering and trial and false accusation and hardship and discouragement and things that in my life as I'm praying for, they still go sideways, I will be able to face that knowing God loves me. And that love that was initiated in the cross is now, because I've responded to it as a, and I've now been made a super conqueror and so have you, we are never going to be separated from his love. I'm not getting into any issues of eternal security versus the possibility of apostasy. I do believe he addresses that later, at least to some degree in chapter 11, but not here. Actually, as we see, we're going through chapters 9 through 10. He continues to look through this one monocle of God's sovereignty as he goes into chapter 9. And we're going to see how in verse 30 of chapter 9 through chapter 11, now he begins to look at this Christian life through both lenses. And he starts introducing the concept of faith and our response in his sovereignty. But he's not doing that here. We have a choice to make. How are you going to respond 
right now. And I'm saying we respond in faith. But you're, it's obviously in the midst of your trial, it's going to drive you to prayer. It's going to drive you to your knees. And that is exactly, by the way, where God wants you, vulnerable, at his mercy, finding yourself completely dependent upon him, not just a little bit, not in essence saying, you know what, God, I can handle this, but this one little thing right over, I, I, I don't know what to do with that, I can't handle it, but I'm going to let you take care of that. No, God, if that's the way you live your Christian life, kind of invite him into those areas that you can't fix and you can't do, rather than in all areas. He's going to press your back up against a wall, and he is going to show you just how vulnerable you truly are, how weak you truly are, just how much you can't do in your own strength. And he will go out of his way to teach you through these sufferings and trials to reflect Jesus because even Jesus himself, listen to this, even Jesus was fully dependent upon the Father. He healed and only did what he saw the Father doing. Jesus placed himself as God come in the flesh in this very vulnerable position, potentially anyway, in which he was completely dependent upon the Father for everything. That is how we are called to live. Just like that. Even Jesus, Hebrews 5 says, learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, that does not mean that, that Jesus sinned and by trial and error, he finally got it. And the father said, yay, my son, you finally obeyed. No, because Jesus was sinless. He learned obedience. In other words, he experienced this concept of obedience in the face of trials and, and human suffering and difficulty that is God in heaven, he did not experience that because he was not made flesh. But the God that so loved us in the midst of our trial made a choice and he came down from heaven to step into your trials. And he has faced the types of trials, and may I say even more so, than what you have faced. And as he faced these trials, fully dependent upon the Father, and Hebrews says, even crying out with tears unto God, he learned, that is, he experienced obedience. Okay? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? I'm, I'm not, he, the, the author of Hebrews is not trying to tell us that Jesus sinned, but he's trying to say that he experienced the very same things of suffering that you're going through, but in the end, he was obedient. Not my will, but yours be done. And that needs to be the cry of our heart. Complete vulnerability and trust and faith in him. So I'm going to suggest to you that prayer on your knees, if you will, is exactly where God wants you to be. And I'm going to encourage you, when you pray, ask him to deliver you from your pain. Ask him to deliver you from this circumstance. Ask him to set you free from this issue from this 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 uh, this trap that you feel the devil has set up for you ask him to come and rescue you from this financial hardship that even though you stepped into it through your own fault you recognize that you've repented and now you're crying out to him for mercy don't be afraid to ask him to set you free that is a part of what it means to be a conqueror but you see it means more than that because what if what if 
He says, Mike Curtis, I love you, son. Something inside of me truly does want to rescue you so you don't have to experience that pain, which is a part of sin and the curse in this fallen world. But Mike, can you trust me? I, I, I need you to go through this. You can't see what I'm going to do, but you, you need to go through this because I've got this awesome thing I can't show. Wow, I wish. Have you, as a parent, have you ever bought your Christmas child a gift like a month beforehand? My, my wife does it at least a month beforehand. I'm, I'm like Christmas Eve going out. What again did you want for Christmas, hon? <laughs> but she is, okay, no, I don't really do it that bad. But she, 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 we, she loves to get the presents. And on occasion I do too. Yes, I do. Um, but the truth is, when you get that present and it goes under the tree, you can hardly wait for that child to open that. It's like, yes. Come on, and you look at their expression, and if another child gets up, and you're, you know, no, hey, move away, I want to see my child open the gift, right? You, you follow what I'm saying? And, and, and we're excited for this, and yet that is the very heart of God. Oh, I wish you could just see what's coming for you. I mean, do you really believe that that is God's heart? I mean, that is contained in this passage right here in verse 37. You're more than conquerors through him who loved you. And it didn't stop there. Love, even though it's the past tense, it's the cross. It, what is it? It's, it's the very fact that you're more than a conqueror and you cannot be separated from his now existing day-by-day, moment-by-moment love for you. Nothing's going to pull you from that. Okay? Nothing. And so the truth is, as we pray, we ask God to deliver us, but he may not. And he may ask us, I need you to persevere. I need you to endure right now. Hold on to me right now. Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah 43. I'm so bad with words to songs. I even asked my wife, I'm just sensing maybe at the end of the sermon, we'll see, but I'm sensing maybe God would have the band do and I said, "Hun, what was, what was that song that we sang right before Stephen shared? I just can't remember. <laughs> I'm really bad with words. I'm bad with names. Uh, don't ever ask me to quote words to a song. I will probably throw the words to three different songs in that should I try to sing it to you. My, my family's laughing. Yes, thank you, too. I told you to go to Isaiah 43, didn't I? So hang on to Isaiah 43. Hang on to Romans chapter 8. And I want you to go now to Psalm 3. Psalm 3. For a moment there, I jumped ahead of myself. And this psalm, I will be quick on this one. This psalm is a psalm of David. And just this past week, we went through Psalm 34 that was written after David went through a hardship in which he almost lost his life, made a really bad mess. Tim, by the way, Tim's not here with us this morning, did an awesome job there. I'm sure, that Mike, you did a great job in yours. Um, but I was in Tim's study, and Tim did a great job in kind of laying out a little bit of background. Here's David. He goes to uh, Nob, where the, the tabernacle is, and he asks Ahimelech, the high priest, you know what, I'm going on a mission, which was true. He was really running from Saul, but he was on a mission. I need 
the sword of Goliath. Because there's none like it. I mean, can you imagine what, what Goliath's sword was like? Try to hide that one behind your back one day. Try to hide that because that's what he had to do because the very next place he visited was Gath. Do you remember where Goliath was from? Goliath from, yeah, Gath. Not a smart move, David. Maybe there's a little bit more that I'm just not seeing, but he gets the sword of Goliath. He's running from Saul to protect himself. He takes that sword. And where does he go? To Goliath's hometown. And so they said, what are you doing here? I mean, you are the one in which they sing, uh, Saul is slain as thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And now, I am not sure what David did with Goliath's sword. We don't hear of it anymore. Maybe his purpose was not to go to Gath, but he was forced to go to Gath. I don't know. But what did he do with that sword? He plays an insane man. And I'm sure David was quite the actor. And then afterwards, he pens the words to Psalm 34. I really was going someplace with that. And while he is in that difficulty, he writes just profoundly and deeply from his heart. And here in this psalm, though it's not Psalm 34, he is writing profoundly and deeply with this emotion that he's struggling with. And he is speaking from the very heart of God. And he says this in verse 7. Considering the enemies that oppose him, arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Now listen to what he says. Strike all my enemies in the jaw or on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. And I would encourage you, understand our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It is not your boss. It is not your spouse that is your enemy. Though, how many of us, no show of hands, how many of us have really been enemies to our spouses at times? Come on, that's right, you don't have to raise your hand. But the real enemy is the devil. You and your spouse, you're on the same team. It is not, the, it is not them that is on the opposing team and against you. It is the devil who wants to have you imagine that and come between you. And so I'm going to encourage you in your prayer of deliverance, ask him, God, would you break the teeth of the enemy? Would you break the teeth of the devil because he is a roaring lion seeking to devour? He prowls around seeking those whom he may devour. The devil seeks to chew us up and destroy us. That's why he asks in this psalm to break the teeth of the wicked, because they would metaphorically devour him. I'm not convinced that he wants God to punch them in the mouth and break their teeth. They would still have a sword in their hand and destroy David. The idea is make it impossible for them to devour me. God, make it impossible for the devil to devour me. So I'm going to encourage you, pray for that deliverance. Now, Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43. 
I know you're already there because you put your thumb in the Bible. Give me a moment as I turn there. In verse 2, it says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Verse 4, since you are precious and honored in my sight and because I love you. Now, there's much more that we could read in that, and I've kind of pulled some things out. But you see, in, at the end of chapter 42, God, through Isaiah, tells them, I had to punish you. I had to wound you so I could heal you. I had to bring severe discipline into your life because you wandered from me. But I'm not going to treat you that way now. Here is my promise to you. And as we go through chapters 40 to 66, he has this concept of the remnant, which prophetically was fulfilled on Pentecost, in which the church was birthed. Now, I'm not going to get into that. But this promise is not just to Israel. This promise is to God's people. Today, right now, Jews and Gentiles, it is for you who believe in Jesus. And he says this, you're going to walk through the waters but I'm going to be with you. You're going to walk through the rivers and they're not going to be able to sweep over you. I can't remember who it was. Just the other day I heard someone say this. I thought that it was truly profound. Let me, here we go. They said this. Now they were quoting from somebody, nevertheless, awesome. God takes us through the water because he knows the enemy can't swim. God is going to take you through the fire because he knows the enemy's not going to follow you there. Fire's destined for him, but he's not stepping into it today. So really, God is going to take you through these circumstances and he's going to sovereignly watch over you. And yes, my prayer is he would deliver you. He would rescue you from your pain and that you wouldn't have to go through that. But what if he does not? Now turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. Excuse me, Daniel chapter 3. We're going to actually see an example of this. And you're well familiar, I am sure, with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, who, by the way, responds completely wrongly to what happens in chapter 2, where in a dream he sees this huge statue of gold And Daniel interprets it and said, you, O king, yeah, you, you are that head of gold. <laughs> and the same word for image <clears throat> that's used in chapter two, <clears throat> excuse me, is now used in chapter three in which Nebuchadnezzar builds this image of gold, except he doesn't get the point. In chapter two, God's kingdom, God's kingdom destroys his kingdom. So what does he do? Does he humble himself? No, that's chapter four. Here, he wants to exalt himself. So he makes an image of gold, and he says, you guys, all of you, including you Jews from Israel, bow down and worship this idol. And they said, I'm sorry, O king, nothing doing. We are not going to do that. And he says, okay, if you don't do it, we're going to throw you into the fire, this furnace of fire. 
And this is what they said. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in verse 16 replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. No, he's, they're not talking smack. They are speaking truth. I don't need to defend myself. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, if God chooses not to rescue us, if he has us go through the pain, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. He's able to rescue us from it. He's able to, he will rescue. Let me just start over. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was furious and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace seven times hotter, had them thrown in, and you remember how the story goes. They didn't get burned up. They went through the fire, and they were not burned. As a matter of fact, they came out of the furnace with the guards who did not get thrown into the furnace, but just outside of it, they're the ones who died. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and apparently an angel, and some have even suggested the pre-incarnate Christ himself, I'm not sure. Regardless, they were walking around. Walking around in this fire, and when they came out, they were not burned, and they did not smell of smoke. And God just wanted to say to Nebuchadnezzar, I just want to show you something. You think you are the king of the world and you have lost perspective because, sorry, buddy, but that's me. That is God in heaven who's the king of this. He owns it. Not you, Nebuchadnezzar. That dream you had, boy, did you blow that out of proportion. You forgot the last part of it where that rock is hewn out of the mountain. And it grows so big, it, be, it, it, it crushes the image of gold and it fills the whole earth. You, you missed that one. You forgot about that. See, that's me and my kingdom. And if you're not careful, I most certainly will destroy you. And God did destroy the, the, the Babylonians, by the way. But chapter 4, and I'm not going to get into it, we do see an amazing change in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. I think he finally got it. Why did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to go through the fire? Why didn't God just change Nebuchadnezzar's heart? Because in God's set purpose, he wanted this. He needed this. May I even say so much as that Nebuchadnezzar needed this. Nebuchadnezzar needed to see, not just in a dream, but now see in, in, in reality and experience the power of this God that he was opposing. And I, I want to ask you, are you ready, should God choose this for you to go through the fire? Are you ready for God to take you through the river to drown your enemy? Are you ready to be able to go through this pain to maximize the glory of God? 
and to be able to allow him to work all things out for your good. Are you ready for that? There is the promise that a thousand will fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. God will take care of his own. His purpose is to love us through this. His purpose is for you to be completely reliant upon him for what end, to what end? That you are a super conqueror. You are an elite conqueror experiencing this truth that nothing is pulling you from his love. You cannot escape it. The devil, try as hard as he may, cannot pull you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He cannot do it because you are living life through Christ. As a result, through him, you will have sufficient courage. Through him as an elite conqueror, you will not listen to the lies of the enemy. Through him, you will not wrongly accuse God. Through him, you will rejoice and embrace God's unseen sovereign purposes. Just recently, a month ago, and you all, most of you are aware of the tragedy that hit our family. And as Sarah Joy went in for a simple half-hour surgery of her gallbladder being removed, it turned into a six-hour surgery. And I'm a little bit better to turn off the emotions when I need to, but my wife is crying, and I'm holding back the tears as best as I could as the doctor's trying to explain the two accidental cuts that he made that threatened her life. And we're listening to this, and he keeps interrupting because he sees my wife in tears, and he says, but she's going to be okay, but she's going to be, and then, the, but she's going to be okay. And then this happened, and then we discovered, but she's going to be okay, okay. I, I'm telling you this so that you're not afraid right now. And I remember as 15 people gathered in Sarah Joy's um, recovery room in the hospital, and she's kind of in and out of it on hydrocodone, and apologizing probably half a dozen, I'm so sorry, guys, that I'm, and out she's out again. Um, and we're just gathered there, and you know we're praying over here, we're, we're sharing, we're rejoicing in God's protection, and but we realize that there's a danger ahead. And when I sat down with the doctor and I said, well, how real is this potential danger in which you could potentially have to go back in and redo this operation? And he said, mm, like for the rest of her life. And I said, really? So the signs of this problem occurring that, that you're describing we have to look for that. She has to look for that for the rest of her. Yeah. Now, this is what Sarah Joyce said. In, in, she, she was already in recovery. So, you know, the hydrocodone wasn't speaking at this point. And she said to those gathered there, she said, you know what? I realize, and I'm paraphrasing. I am totally okay with this. 
that I have to live with this for the rest of my life. Because I know that if it means this person's salvation, or if it means this, or if it means this, I am okay with that. Because God has a perfect plan. And that is my challenge to you. God has a perfect plan. I'm going to encourage you, do not mourn as you're going through your struggles as the world mourns. Now, I'm not saying don't mourn. As a matter of fact, when people are going through struggles and they're mourning, we are encouraged to mourn with them. Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Romans chapter 12. But we are not to mourn like the world mourns. You see, the world has no hope. They're without God in this world and without hope, Scripture says. When they lose a loved one, they mourn because there's no hope. They will never see that person again. And that is devastating for them, Paul says to the Thessalonians, but don't mourn like the pagans do. When you fall asleep in Christ, when, you're, when you, people you love fall asleep in Christ, you're going to see them again. Don't mourn like the world does. When you're going through trials, it is not the end of the world for you. Actually, if you could see the future, just wait, church. Jesus is waiting for you to open that Christmas gift. Remember that analogy? He is waiting for you to be able to see at least some of what he is wanting to accomplish in your life and through your life. You just can't right now. So we trust him. And we do not mourn like the world mourns. Again, we go through mourning. We just don't go through it like the world does. We do not despair in our mourning because we cling to the truths that we won't live by faith. We cling to the truth that God loves me. We cling to the truth that he is faithful. We cling to the truth that he will never leave me. We cling to the truth that all things work together for my good, and we do this by faith. Now, what if, what if, instead of walking by faith, God were to give you a glimpse of the future? What if that's how God chose to live, for you to live your life? Some of us are saying, man, that would be awesome. Living by faith can be so hard. Get it, church. We would, how many times have we said, God, just give me this little bit of hope, you know, the, the light at the end of the tunnel. Let me see, let me just confirm that you're in this, that this is going to be okay. And if God, instead of choosing for you to trust him, whenever you prayed a prayer like that, he would say, okay. You said the magic words. Now I'm going to give you a little glimpse of the future. Voila, here we go. There's a particular gentleman that gives an illustration of this. A pastor, I believe, who lived in Hawaii. He loves football. He loves watching his favorite football team win. On Monday night, he, re he recounts that when he lived in Hawaii, everyone else was watching Monday night football on Monday night. But for him, it was in the afternoon. So he always had to see a delayed broadcast, taped. So 
he, he, would, he got to see his team, he could see his team play after the fact Monday night, but he wanted to listen to the game, so he would listen to it Monday afternoon on radio. And so he'd listen to the game, and he, you can only imagine, if you're a football fan, oh, my team, they fumbled it again. What are you doing? You're going to lose this game. You know, the intense emotion. You throw, what do you do? You throw another interception? Guys, you're, this game is getting out of hand. You're going to lose. Come on, guys. Pull it together. You, you start talking to the quarterback, don't you? Yeah, anybody relate to this? What are you doing, Egghead? You need to catch that pass. It just flipped you know, right through your fingers. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that because my wife, her, that is her favorite team. But he said, even though I would listen to the game and my team won, I always wanted to watch the game that night. But I watched it from a very different perspective. And when my favorite receiver on my favorite team would drop a pass, I didn't say, you egghead, what are you doing? I would say, that's okay, because I know you're going to win in the end. We don't have the privilege of listening to our life on radio and then watching it. Can I give an example for you? If if you're in a courtship with a young lady and this is completely irrelevant to any courting in our church, of course, or dating. And in the process of this relationship, you begin to sense the relationship drifting. But you have already figured out when you're going to propose, what type of ring, where you're going to do it, what it's going to look like, and it is bigger than life. And she comes to you, and she says, you know what? Things just have not been working out the way I really wanted it. And I just don't love you the way you love me. How would that make you feel? you would probably be devastated. You would probably try to talk her back into continuing this relationship and one day marrying you. Probably. She ends it. You're devastated. And you're on your knees in the quietness of your bedroom and you're saying, God, this is so hard. It hurts so badly. I feel rejected. I feel like I'm not good enough for her. Where are you in this? What if? God were to say, you don't need to exercise faith right now because I am now going to show you your potential future. I'm going to show you what life would have been like should you have married her. And that distance that began in the courtship continues into the marriage. There's something that's going on in her heart. She's never open to it. She doesn't talk about it. She says she's fine. Time goes on. She gets pulled more and more through various things and full-time jobs, etc., from family. She's too busy to spend time with you. And then the day comes. She hands you the papers for divorce. 
And she begins to tell you the backstory of how far she's drifted. And she's been unfaithful to you. And can I ask you, how much more is that pain than the pain you're going through at that moment that he's showing you this? You see, church, we can't see the future. It's very rare that God opens it up to us. I do believe that he can do that. It's just rare. And the reason why it's rare is because of this thing called faith. And he wants you to trust him and believe him that he really is so in love with you that he is working everything out for your good. And he is purposefully allowing you to go through pain for the good that is down the road that you cannot see. Can you trust God's plan? His sovereign plan, that he is good, that he lavishly loves you, that through him who loved you, you are a super conqueror by the cross. I want to just close in this in the very same way I closed last week. You are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. All of this starts with his love and it ends with his love it starts with his love demonstrated for you on the cross communion is a wonderful way for us to be reminded of christ's love for us and i just want to take a moment right now apart from communion and just give you an angle of his love for you that maybe you haven't seen and can i confess to you i had not seen it I was in a teen Bible study the other night, and God had laid these series of passages on Jim's heart. And his challenge was to do not forsake your first love. And if you have, repent and do the things you did at first. But how is this love stirred up? Do you have to sing more worship songs? Do you have to read more of the Bible? Do you have to go to some revival concert or... or, or conference or go to a Carrie Job uh, concert? Uh, What do you do to stir up this first love? And Jim brought home such a good point. He said, it all starts with his love. First John 3, it says, we love because he first loved us. So let me tell you how much he loves you. And this is what he shared. And I pulled him aside afterward and I said, Jim, your father and pastor had not seen that. And that was like an aha moment for me. Thank you. Apparently in The Prince and the Pauper, the king, the kings are not allowed to touch their feet. This is a general principle. When you are a king, your servants take your sandals off and they wash your feet and you do not. Washing the feet Loosening or tying the sandals is whose job? The servants. Now, if you were to look at what John the Baptist said about Jesus, let me remind you that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet. That's Jesus' declaration. The greatest prophet to that day. 
pretty remarkable commendation, if you ask me. But this is what John the Baptist said. He who's coming after me, I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I am not worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandals. Translation, as the greatest prophet of the old covenant, I am not worthy to be the servant of Jesus. I don't know, that, that struck me. And then Jim took us to one more passage. He said, no, look at this, so profound. And in John 13, it begins by saying that Jesus, to demonstrate the full extent of his love, did this. And I'm going to call it a prophetic act because the full extent of Jesus' love truly is conveyed in the cross. But what he did that night was a prophetic act. It looked ahead to the cross. And that prophetic act was this. Jesus, when they had arrived into the upper room for the last supper, he took a servant's towel. He took off his outer, outer garment and he took about his waist. The king of the universe, the one whose blood that was spilled on Calvary's cross was so precious to the Father, it turned the wrath of God away from you and it satisfied his wrath and was the full demonstration of God's love for his creation. That God, come in the flesh, girds about his waist, this servant's towel. And he said, now it is time for me to wash your feet. Now, if you think through this, John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, felt unworthy to be Jesus' servant. And yet Jesus serves him. Jesus served his disciples. That is love. That the God of the universe in all of his glory and majesty that is beyond even a little bit of my understanding, stepped down out of that into my suffering existence. And he said, you may not feel worthy to touch me and my feet, but I will do this for you. You can't die for me, but I will certainly die for you. Because as he hung there on the cross, he said, I love you this much, and he died. That is the love of the Savior that laid down his life, stepped out of heaven to lay down his life for you so that you, through him, would be the most incredible conqueror this world has ever seen. 